the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We spent all of February in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 talking about the topic of Christian liberty, gray areas, the rights that we have as Christians, things that are not forbidden in Scripture, things that are not commanded in Scripture. They're gray areas. There's things we have the right to do. And we can summarize that whole series by saying this. We are, as Christians, to prefer others in love through a willingness to give up our rights. It doesn't mean that we don't have the rights. It means we choose not to exercise those rights. And although it seems that Paul is making a turn in topics in chapter 9 by talking about the minister's right to pay, his right to pay as an apostle, he's actually still in the context of the topic of Christian liberty. And what he is doing is setting up himself as an example of one who willingly gave up a specific right, that is pay, for the sake of the church. But before he goes on to explain that, which we see a bit of at the end of today's passage, but we'll see more thoroughly in the rest of the chapter, um, in the next few weeks we'll take a break for Easter Sunday, we are given a powerful teaching on the apostle and pastor's pay. Now, this would include many different areas of vocational ministry and not just limited to a pastor, a seminary professor, for example, a missionary, to name just a couple. But with the role of an apostle no longer extant, the closest connection we have to Paul's role would be that of a pastor. And this morning, we continue looking at Paul's defense of the pastor's right to a salary in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 14, I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 14. Turn there with me, and you will see that he continues this topic, but ties it into the, the topic of Christian liberty. Chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, verses 8 through 14, having seen the introduction to this specific topic last week in verses 1 through 7. Follow along as I read. I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? 
Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. This morning, we're going to look at five explanations for the vocational minister's pay. Five explanations for the vocational, that is, employed, paid, salaried minister's pay. The first explanation for paying a pastor or minister is the proof from Scripture. The proof from Scripture. I'm going to read for you again verses 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians 9. He says, and remember, although we take it paragraph by paragraph, sometimes word by word, obviously Paul wrote a letter with one continuous flow of thought. And so he's alluding to verse 7 as he starts, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. It was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. Now, if you recall, and you can just look back in your Bibles, we finished last, last week in verse 7 with Paul giving us three examples from everyday life, secular life, if you will, in which the worker gets paid for his work. They were the soldier, the farmer, and the shepherd. And what he is saying in verse 8 is that his proof that a pastor or an, or an apostle should get paid is not just from these types of secular examples, but also from the Word of God, the Scriptures, particularly the Mosaic Law. Now, this is very typical, as we know, of the Apostle Paul. Paul is never, or rarely at least, content with making an argument simply based on how things are, the status quo, societal norm. Rather, as he does here, he appeals to Scripture, to the Word of God. Now, the law in your Bibles is capitalized, capital L, law, and so here we know it's referring to the Scriptures. It's not referring to Roman law or even Jewish law as man-made, but the law in the Scriptures, God's law. And here we're referring to, Paul's referring to the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of your Bible in which God lays out His law for His people, the directions how to glorify Him, what is to set the nation of Israel apart from the rest of the world, God's law. And here's the point in Paul saying this in verse 8. He is saying that I don't just have human authority or human examples for what I'm saying. I have divine authority in claiming that I, as an apostle, have the right to a salary. In other words, he says God's law teaches the same thing that he just wrote about in verse 7 regarding the soldier and the farmer and the shepherd. And the verse he's quoting here is Deuteronomy 25.4, which we saw last week in a cross-reference in 1 Timothy. And the Old Testament says exactly this, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, something that you're all familiar with. No, I'm just kidding. What is this? 
Before the invention of modern machinery, an ancient agricultural practice, remember this was 2,000 years ago, was to hook up what was called a threshing sledge on an ox so that the ox would walk around and pull this threshing sledge, this thresher, behind it. And this device would be dragged over grain that had been harvested, and what it would do, it would put pressure on that grain, and the kernel would pop out of the stalk, the kernel being the part that we eat. Now, we don't actually eat the kernel itself. We eat things made out of the kernel, right? Your flowers and your oats and things like that. It's the part you wanted to eat. You didn't want the the fibrous stalk that gets stuck in your teeth and cleanses you out pretty good, but doesn't really get digested, right? You've, some of you have started eating these things in the, the recent years as they tell us that stuff is healthy, but it's, it's hard. It's why a lot of us like white rice, not brown rice, okay? You want to get the stock out, okay? This is way more than you want to know. Now, going back to the law, the law called for the ox not to be muzzled during this process, and a muzzle is the same as you would see on a dog today where you muzzle a dog's mouth because you don't want it to bark, or if it's a, a, a dog that's prone to bite, you just don't want the dog to open its mouth. And God said, you cannot, while the ox is doing the threshing for you, you cannot muzzle him. You cannot close his mouth. And the reason this was is so, very simply, the ox could eat while he was working. And that's actually why people would muzzle the ox so he wouldn't eat all of the grain as he was doing the work. And the idea here is that even the beast of the field, even the ox, is able to receive sustenance for his work. The analogy to the pastor or the apostle and his pay is very clear. And then Paul goes on to to address and explain this verse. The end of verse 9, he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? And he says, yes, it's for our sake. It's for people's sake. Because the plowman should hope that he's going to get some fruit of his labors and the thresher is going to get some share of the crops he is threshing. Now, the end of verse 9 is not saying that God doesn't care anything about animals. Animals glorify Him. They're part of His creation. Elsewhere in Scripture, His provision for animals is seen. But as it is here, as it is in Deuteronomy 25, as it is in the Gospels, God's provision and care for animals is shown only to highlight His greater care for people. Most prominently, of course, is Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, and he's addressing the concern about, uh, that, the, that the disciples would have, and he says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? That would be the cheapest animal. If you wanted to eat meat in that society and you had no money, you could at least eat sparrows because they were the cheapest thing you could buy, two for a cent. And he goes on, Jesus says, and yet... Not one of them falls to the ground, either flitters improperly or dies, and God doesn't know about it. In other words, God even knows about that. God even is concerned about these cheap two-for-a-cent sparrows. That is the passage where he goes on to say, even the hairs on your head are numbered by God. 
But he ends by saying, how much more then is God's concern for his people? In fact, Matthew 10, 31, the end of that, the, the conclusion of that passage is, so do not fear, human, you are more valuable than many sparrows. In the same way, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is bringing up the oxen to make an argument from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if God cares about the lesser, the sparrows or the oxen, then he certainly cares about the greater, the height of his creation, people. If he cares about the beast of the field, he definitely cares about you. Subsequently, if even the beast of the field makes a living through his threshing, how much more the human through his work, the pastor through his ministry. Now, Paul isn't taking this Old Testament passage out of context, although it may seem like that. But if you read the entirety of Deuteronomy 25, where this is originally found, the verse about the ox, which Paul quotes, seems out of place even in that chapter, even in its original context. Because when you read Deuteronomy 25, it is all about human relationships, various laws regarding human relationships. Specifically, you will see a theme in Deuteronomy 25, socioeconomic relationships from man to man, between man and man. And the reason that verse is there in Deuteronomy 25 is for the same purpose that Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians to emphasize the care that God has and that we should have for other people. So just to, to clarify, just as Paul uses the oxen and threshing as an analogy for people, that's exactly how it was used in Deuteronomy 25. Now, Paul makes that very point in verse 10. He says, This verse is about oxen, but it wasn't written for oxen. It's written for us. That's very obvious. And if it's not obvious, may I quote Martin Luther, who comments on this verse and says, Oxen cannot read. The law is written for us. The law is to instruct us on how to treat one another and to treat God. In other words, the primary application, though I'm sure if they had this capacity, oxen are very thankful for this, The primary application is for us. It is not for the animals. Why for us? At the end of verse 10, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. There is an intrinsic connection between one's activity and one's compensation for that activity. I don't think you even, as we... uh, usually think of it, you don't go to work or these days roll over in your bed and turn on Zoom and say, well, I hope I get paid. It is a hope that is basically, I know it's coming, right? It's, it's almost like the hope that we have of heaven. We hope for heaven, but it's not like, oh, I hope I get it. We know we're going to be there. And it's the same thing. It, it is directly connected to your work. So, beast or man, all who work are to share in the fruit of their labors. And so, Paul clearly shows that there is proof for what he is claiming in God's law. You have to understand as well that when 
the apostles refer to it is written. It's always the Old Testament. There are a couple times where uh, one of the men who penned Scripture referred to another man who penned Scripture. But at this time, there was only the Old Testament that was part of the Scriptures. Now we have the New Testament as well. The New Testament was being written at the time. And so, uh, just as uh, for us, uh, it is God's Word. Today, we are not bound by God's law, and we praise God for that, His Old Testament law specifically, and we praise Him for that because our lives would be very difficult. You, you know, you think about it, you look at uh, even the modern Jews, they, they try to do it, and we understand a lot of what they do is, is uh, our man-made rules that were there already in Jesus' time that Jesus condemns over and over again, but they simply cannot do it. They can hold dietary laws, they can do certain, follow certain modest, modesty laws, but they, they just can't sacrifice animals. Um, I don't think anywhere in the world do Jews do this to the extent that they are called to do in the Old Testament. So uh, even for those who are claiming that they are still bound by the Old Testament law, they are not doing it. But we know that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and we follow His commands, not the commandments. Well, back to our text. We've seen the proof from Scripture. The second explanation for the vocational minister's pay is the provision for service. In verse 11, he quite simply says, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? We tend to think of payment for goods, right? We spend our money on things that we get in return that are physical, that are tangible. I give you cash. You allow me to live in your home. You provide shelter. That's tangible. The roof, the walls, the floor, the protection, the feeling of safety. I swipe my card. You let me take these bags of groceries home and keep them consume them. Sowing material things to reap material things. We think that way, right? Oh, I got a bonus. Now I can buy that thing, right? Even if that thing is not uh, long-lasting, like a home or a car, right? It's a flight. It's a hotel stay. It is food that you're going to eat half of before you even get out of the parking lot, right? No one? Oreos, chips, you know, you break it open, right? Maybe not now because you want to sanitize everything first, but, but we, we understand that, right? We live in a capitalist society. We're very thankful for that, and so our mindset revolves around that. But the principle of reaping material things should also apply to sowing spiritual things, material things being, of course, the things that are necessary for living, And for Paul, this sowing refers to his missionary work, the evangelism, the church planting, the training, the teaching, the admonishing, the rebuking, writing this very letter that we're studying this morning. All of that was his work. And part of the challenge for some to fully grasp what he's saying is, unfortunately, many of us value material things more than spiritual things. 
I'm not talking about my service to you. I'm talking about even in your own life. We value material things more than spiritual things. I know I'm going to get angry. I know it's going to make me not be able to be a good dad and be a good husband for a while, but I need this. I need to buy this. And we're willing to sacrifice the spiritual for the material. And that's a problem. Because not only are spiritual things more important than material things, far more weighty than material things, in comparison, material things are insignificant to spiritual things. We like our comfort. We like not being hungry. And I don't mean had to work through lunch and skip lunch. I mean hunger, hunger, right? Aside from just, well, he's homeless. That's how he does. We don't understand true hunger that would drive someone to be excited to grab a half-eaten ant-covered granola bar out of the trash can and eat it. Right? We, we expect these things. We find comfort in these things. But all of you who are believers, I know, would say, and this is impossible, but hypothetically speaking, if I were to give you the choice between never eating again, and so you would last a few days before you die, versus losing your salvation, you say, I'm keeping my salvation, right? But because we have been blessed, if we can call it that, because we have been given much, we want more. My kids couldn't believe, as I explained to them, now two of them can't really grasp this, the older one can, the cost of a brand new iPhone and the fact that people will sleep overnight. People with homes, people who can afford an iPhone, will live like a homeless person so that they can be one of the first to get a $1,000 cell phone, which they could order online and get two days later, shipped to their home. And they do that every year. Now, verified or not, conspiracy or not, the whole thing about, you know, these big companies purposely hijack your phone, so after three or four years, they're basically useless, have no battery life. You've heard that. Some people think they do that on purpose. Well, even the people who are making millions of dollars off of these phones still give you three to four years, and yet people will do this year after year. We love our stuff. We love our material things, and the more we have, the more we want the better one next year, and then a year from then, next one. Right? Some of us are sitting here, this is not a bad thing, some of us are sitting here with a full understanding that your cell phone now has six cameras on it with zero understanding of how to use any of them. It's, it's nuts, right? And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to have these things. I'm saying that as believers, we need to value spiritual things over material things. And you know you value material things over spiritual things by simply looking at your pocketbook. How much of your bank account is going to things 
which you receive nothing back from. Missionaries you've never met. Christian organizations that don't shepherd you at all. Children that you can feed overseas that you will never meet. Who send you letters once a year. And you know they were forced to write that letter. We become greedy. We come, become materialistic. We become worldly. We become more secular than we ought to be. To be sure, Paul and all Christian ministers and all Christians who serve in some way will receive their true and eternal payment from the Lord directly. But now, for now, appreciation should be shown by meeting ministers' needs. And churches are to do this not out of their abundance, but out of privilege and duty. We know that the churches of Macedonia, which included Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, and probably others, they supported Paul financially despite being in dire circumstances both physically and spiritually. What I mean is this, these churches had very little to give and they were under constant persecution for their faith. In fact, turn ahead to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Then a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy, and their deep poverty. Wow. Look up, guys. You ever hear those two in connection? In this world of ours? In this country of ours? Abundance of joy connected with deep poverty? I actually have, because I have found the more blue collar and the less money people have in our country, the happier they tend to be. Overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Verse 3, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They had nothing and they begged Paul to take their money, to give to other people. You've seen this. You've seen this on the streets of San Francisco where homeless people are giving other homeless people their food and their cash. Whereas the middle class put it deeper in their pockets and say, sorry, buddy, I don't have any change on me. We need to be careful, guys. We need to be careful how we view money, how we view the blessings of comfort and protection and shelter and conveniences and Internet and things like that from the Lord. I got a lot of feedback from the various small groups we have from last week's sermon, and I'm very encouraged, and it really comes down to it's because you guys understand the Bible, you trust the Bible, 
things that you are not saying in generalities, but specifically about my salary. And I have no doubts that you would feel that way either way because of what the Scriptures say. But I would ask you, if that sermon was not just seven days after an annual members meeting where my relatively low by choice salary was exposed, where our gracious giving last year was calculated, would it be different if they said, we're going to go to a smaller room and we can't afford a hotel because 90% of our giving last year needs to go to the pastor's salary? Would it be different if you added a one in front of my salary? in that meeting? Would your answers have been different? I don't think they would be because I trust you guys and I know you guys, but it's something to think about, to gauge where we are. Well, there must be a provision for service. Thirdly, the preference for sacrifice. The preference for sacrifice in verse 12. If others share the right over you, do we not mourn? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And now we start seeing where Paul starts talking about his willingness to sacrifice, to give up his Christian liberty, his right. Even though Paul didn't receive pay, it was for a specific reason that doesn't negate the right that he has. The first phrase of verse 12 shows that there were others who ministered to the Corinthians who received payment for this service. And Paul says if they had the right to this, if they took payment, Paul asked, do we not more? Why more? Because he was the founder of the church. He was an apostle. He has a special relationship with the church as their spiritual father. Though not a direct comparison, it's as if a pastor of a church today said, wait, wait wait a minute, you gave the guest speaker an honorarium, shouldn't I get something too? We support these missionaries who come once every five years and give us a slideshow, shouldn't I get paid too? That's basically what Paul is saying. If these other guys got paid, don't I have the right as your apostle, as the founder of your church, as the one who led you all to Christ? If the associate pastor gets a salary, if the children's minister, if the high school pastor gets a salary, should not the senior pastor deserve a salary too? And, of course, the answer is a resounding yes. Nevertheless, Paul says, we do not use this right. And this is a reference back to the fact that both he and Barnabas didn't receive pay from the Corinthians but paid their own way through their secular jobs. And as he continues, Paul now brings us back to the larger topic of giving up one's Christian liberty for the sake of others. He says that they chose not to receive payment, endure all things, he says, so as to not hinder the gospel. The word endure means to bear a burden, to pass over in silence. It's the idea of protecting, covering someone. We'll see this in 1 Corinthians 13 when it says love endures all things. 
And we understand this in our modern usage of the word as well. I endure this heat. I endure this time of shelter in place. Now, Paul's willingness to endure any sort of hardship, particularly here having to have a second job, is for the furtherance of the gospel because anything he does is for the furtherance of the gospel. He doesn't want to be a hindrance in any way. And this is a good reminder that more often than not, it is those who are called to be proclaimers of the gospel that are the greatest hindrance to the gospel. The gospel itself is not a hindrance to itself, okay? We are the hindrance. We are the ones who misprioritize. We are the ones who fear man. We are the ones who keep quiet. We are the ones who would rather, in our minds and our gross assumptions, keep that friendship than risk it by sharing the gospel. We are the hindrance. Okay? We're supposed to be the hose, right? We're supposed to be the tube through which it flows. We get all rusted and corroded and blocked up inside so the water does not flow freely. And if it does come out, it's all messed up and dirtied and compromised. But this does beg the question, how does receiving pay for apostolic ministry, for pastoral ministry, become a hindrance to the gospel? Fear of man, refusal to evangelize, of course we understand that's a hindrance. But doesn't Paul just say that others receive pay? And isn't this whole passage saying that others should receive pay? Isn't every church in the world today staffed by those who are in some way paid? Yet the gospel still goes forth. How is him or Barnabas receiving pay a hindrance to the gospel? Well, it's one of those things where he doesn't say explicitly, so we don't know for sure. We can't be dogmatic. We don't know what he's referring to, what he has in mind. But the historical and specific literary contexts give us some clue as to what he might mean. Today, paying pastors is biblically established and a cultural norm. Back then, this was new territory. And I don't mean paying someone who is a religious authority. They've been doing that for centuries. What was new territory was Christianity. Paul didn't want, perhaps, people to think that he was doing what he was doing out of selfish motives, selfish gain, especially when this is something new. We think about cult leaders today, right? What are they in it for? They're in it for the power, they're in it for the money, and unfortunately, they're in it for the women, often underage. See this over and over again. Even in our modern day, right? Someone was just recently jailed for something like this, and there are women who still swear allegiance to him, who are outside of the prison dancing and holding up signs. It is nuts. These people are famous actresses and business people and doctors. You think, how can this be? And yet it still happens. But that's the idea you have to see as how many people viewed Christianity. Oh, here's another one of these fake religions, and so these people are just in it for the money. Another scam. And again, we don't know for sure, but perhaps that's what Paul was thinking. Right? He didn't want people to think that 
in order to hear the gospel meant that you were obligated to pay something. Even some of the biggest world religions have that. They have tiers. They have levels. And you pay your way into the secret chambers and the upper echelons. That's why Tom Cruise is the most well-known Scientologist. You think Tom Cruise would be invited to all those private parties and things like that if he wasn't Tom Cruise? No. And so, that could be a reason. There could be another reason, speaking of new territory. Remember, Paul was the first and the primary apostle, not to Jews, but to Gentiles. He was called to the Gentiles. This is even more pertinent as they would not be familiar with these concepts, unlike the Jews who would have Deuteronomy 25.4, who understood these things, who had centuries of required tithing to the Levites and the priesthood. And so Paul maybe didn't want people to think that becoming a Christian came with strings attached, a particular string attached to his pocket. Some have suggested that there was a fear of people thinking that Paul would be indebted to certain individuals who gave more money so that the gospel became not a free gift of grace but a reward to the highest bidder. Which, by the way, is a great warning to pastors and congregations today. As I have, you have probably heard stories of people who are mired in bad doctrine, even though the pastors know better. Why aren't you firing her? Well, you know, and and it comes down to the one big donor who supports 65% of the church budget says, you fire her, I'm out of here. You've heard it before. This actually happens. And maybe this is something that Paul was concerned about as well. Again, with all of the religions around him, including Judaism, he would have seen this type of thing taking place all around him. The power, the money, the strings attached. Again, we don't know for sure. But we do know his heart, willing not to take payment for his ministry, working in his spare time, whatever spare time he had, to make money so as not to be a hindrance to the gospel. Again, now with established ministries and churches and with this passage, pastors need to be supported. In the wider context of chapter 9, Paul is saying that we need to pay pastors, but is here alluding to his volitional denial of his Christian liberty to be paid. I do want to make mention of the word endure again, going back to that. We understand that though this was a choice, this is something he wanted to do. He used the word endure, which shows us that there was a level of hardship for Paul by being a tent maker. And I think anyone who has worked two jobs understands this. I think especially those who were once supported by one job and now need a second job really understand this. You endure it. It is difficult. Paul made a sacrifice which was his preference for the sake of the gospel. 
not for his reputation, well, for his reputation so long as it was for the sake of the gospel, but not just so he would look good, not just for selfish reasons, but for the sake of the gospel. That in itself is a sermon right there. And having explained this, Paul returns to the need to pay ministers and gives us a precedent, which is our fourth explanation for the vocational minister's pay, the precedent from society. Verse 13, do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Judaism being so prominent, even Gentiles would be at least vaguely aware of the temple system. Priests were paid. The Mosaic law established the requirement for a portion of the Jewish sacrifice, the actual physical animal, part of that, was to be given to the Levites for sustenance. They were to eat it. That's their food. Now, they had to do special things with it because it was part of a holy sacrifice, burn it, what they didn't eat, things like that, depending on the animal, depending on the day, the sacrifice. But they were to eat that. Many of you have heard me say before that we cannot connect our giving today to the church, to the Old Testament tithing, because it doesn't match. A lot of people say, oh, the Old Testament says we are to give 10%. No, it doesn't. They were to give 28% if you look at their yearly budget. And it doesn't translate to us in percentages, but it also doesn't translate to us in even what it was for. And this is the point here. They gave to support the Levites. They gave to support the leaders. They were not only their spiritual authority and temple leaders, they were in as a spiritual people, The spiritual leadership included adjudicating. They were their judges. They were their their police. One of my children is named after Phineas. There was a plague on Israel. Thousands died because one Jew disobeyed and took a non-Jew that they were forbidden to do into his tent. We know what that means. And so what did Phineas do? He went, walked right into that tent, and drove a spear through both their bodies, killed them, was righteous because he stopped the plague and the destruction of Israel. Why do I bring that up? He was a priest. This is what they did. And so it doesn't translate to today because it would be more like our income tax, our property taxes, right, to pay for the schools, the police, the fire department, city hall, things like that. But there was this established understanding, and remember Judaism was still uh, very much in play at that time. And we're told in Numbers 18, the Lord... Uh, it's one of the verses in where this, it says that the Levites are to have a portion, right? They were not to have other jobs. This was it. They were to be paid for their temple service. In Numbers 18, 12, the Lord says it wasn't just part of the end. It's very specific if you read through those passages. It's always the right side, the right thigh of the animal. And remember, they're, they're sacrificing like... Big animals, right? We think chicken thigh, right? How's that going to sustain a whole 
one of the whole tribes. I mean, we're talking about oxen after, I mean, I, I don't know how big it is, honestly, but it's got to be bigger than a chicken thigh, right? These are big pieces of meat. You ever wondered that, by the way, the wave offering? They were to take these giant chunks of meat and wave it. And we picture, again, a chicken thigh. I mean, it would have been like, I mean, how do you? Anyways, that's just uh, something to keep you up tonight thinking about. Um, but it actually says in Numbers 18.12 that the Levites were to be given the best of everything in their support. Now, of course, this doesn't translate directly today since we give, at least in this country, money, not food. Right? You don't take 10% of your dinner and throw it on my doorstep. Let me rephrase that. Please do not take 10% of your food and throw it on my doorstep. I have three young boys at home. There's enough food scattered all over our floors. So it's different today, but it does remind me of a story when I was uh, overseas on the mission field before I was... um, before I was married, I was there single, and I think it was before I had even met, yeah, it was before I had even met uh, uh, the woman who would become my wife, and uh, there was another couple there who was the, went to be the dean of the seminary. I had known him many years ago, and we reconnected in Albania. He actually led the second team I was as a, uh, when I was a collegian, and so they would have me over a lot, and at that time, they had one uh, adopted daughter. And I remember that they had gone to the post office that day, which was a big deal. You, they didn't get, you don't get mail there. I mean, you get mail, but it doesn't come to your home because it's so rare. Uh, you, you get a slip, which, why don't you just bring the mail? They, they give you a slip at your door that tells you to go to the post office to get your mail. And, you know, for us missionaries, usually it was some sort of care package, so we're are really excited, even though we'd have to fight the crowds, and usually it'd be a whole day thing, waiting there for a day and, and in line and things like that. But anyways, he got this package, and uh, he was kind of, uh, you know, I forgot what he said, um, but he clearly was a little saddened. And I remember sitting there at his dinner table in their apartment, and their young, da- their young daughter said, what's wrong, Daddy? And it was because he had just received this care package. And he said this, and I'll never forget this. And frankly, it's changed the way we treat, my my family and I treat missionaries. And, And subsequently how our church treats missionaries. He goes... He didn't want to go into detail, right? She was She was very young. And he just goes... Some people just like to mail missionaries their used stuff and think it's a good thing. I would imagine, like you right now, like I was back then, you're convicted because you've done that. You don't have the heart to get, throw away your old clothes and your old stuff. It's still good. Eh, goodwill, okay, maybe. But, oh, what missionaries do, do we support? Maybe we can ship them our junk. We think that way. Why? Because they asked for it? No, because they're missionaries. Our leftovers. We can't do that. We know that even 
in Corinth in the pagan temples, the Corinthians would be familiar with the priests of the pagan gods, the idols, given their share of the offerings as payment. That would, of course, been modeled after the original, which was the Jewish temple. But that is the precedent from society. Finally, the proclamation of surety. The proclamation of surety. There's nothing more sure or final than the words of Jesus Christ himself. And so in verse 14, he says, So also the Lord, speaking of Jesus, directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Very simple. Very clear, summarizing, concluding point. Jesus himself said those who proclaim the gospel are to get their living from the gospel. In other words, Jesus established, and this is, this is fun. This is a really cool thing. Jesus established vocational ministry before he established the church. Jesus established pastors getting paid, missionaries getting paid, evangelists getting paid before he even established the church. In fact, it's because he established that that they were able to establish the church in the book of Acts. In both Matthew 10 and Luke 10, we read of Jesus sending out the disciples and instructing them, I quote, take no bag nor money. Today, the equivalent would be to tell a pastor, leave your wallet at home. You're our guest speaker. We're paying for everything. You're not going to pay for a thing. Don't bring any cash. Don't bring any cards, credit, debit, ATM, nothing. But Jesus goes on and tells these people as he sends them out, don't even pack an extra set of clothes or sandals. Now, keep in mind, these are people who only would have owned one or two or three sets of clothes. They would wear the same thing for several days in a row. So don't, don't try to think of how, how we would do that. But don't even bring extra sandals. That's different, right? You, you know, we've, you ever gone on vacation and you see these people coming in with like eight Louis Vuitton bags and you're like, how long are these people staying here? They live here? And then you see them checking out three days later. <laughs> Because they want to bring all, everything they have. Just, you know, you never know how you want to dress. Maybe we'll end up going to a club. Maybe we'll end up going to a fancy dinner. We need to dress appropriately. They just want their variety. That's not what the case is here. It's because sandals wear out. They walked everywhere. There was no asphalt. There was no cement. There There were not even synthetic leathers that we have today and things like that. And so they would wear out. And they, for what he was calling them to do, they definitely, definitely needed more than one pair of sandals because they can't wear, walk barefoot for miles and miles, knocking on door after door. But he says, don't take any of that. Don't even take a change of clothes. Don't even bring one shekel. Why? Because he ends with, and again I quote, for the worker is worthy of his support. Or in Luke, the laborer is worthy of his wages. No money, no extra clothes, no extra sandals needed because wherever you go, they should house you, they should feed you, and if they notice that you need new clothes or sandals, they should give that to you. The laborer is worthy of his wages. 
Your needs should be met by the people you minister to. Disciple. Now today we don't expect a pastor to pack up his bags and leave to a new town because he's got a new job as a, a new pastorate at a new church with only the clothes on their back. Shut down their bank account, give away everything. That's not, it doesn't translate well over 2,000 years. The equivalent in our day, of course, would be a salary and benefits. And we saw that the Corinthians were already paying others, so why is Paul bringing this up? Let's leave the trees and go back to our overview of the whole forest. He's setting up the theological implications regarding the question regarding eating meat sacrifice to idols. Remember that? We're still in that. He's still talking about that. He does this by establishing a right that he has as a minister of the gospel and his choice for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of others, to forego that right or, as he has already said, any right. And ultimately, the spiritual good of others is more important than insisting on even divinely God-given, authorized rights. Even the ones God Himself has said you deserve to get, we should be willing to give up for the sake of other people. The proof from Scripture, the provision for service, the preference for sacrifice, giving up His rights, the precedent from society, the temple system, the proclamation of surety. Jesus Himself established it, not Paul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the clarity of Your Word. Thank You for the example of the Apostle Paul, who we know was in Your sovereignty, and yet his choices for Your glory were used by You to establish the church, which is why we are here today. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be people who understand not just the specifics of paying ministers and supporting missionaries. pray that you would also convict us against, about our materialism, our holding on, our filling storehouses full of money where moth and rust destroy rather than using and giving. Ultimately, Lord, may we be willing to give up our rights for the sake of others. Lord, perhaps that's our right to spend our money on ourselves rather than giving to missionaries, supporting the church. May we be willing to give up that right. Whatever right it may be, I pray that you would convict us. May our excuses be from Scripture and not from our own selfish desires. Use us for your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name.